Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are learning the second portion of Parshat Shlach. In the last section, we discussed the mission of the 12 spies to Israel, explained why, according to the story in our parasha, spies is actually not an accurate term, and discussed the comparison of the two stories in Shlach and in Dvarim. Was the mission a reconnaissance military mission, spying, or a mission to have the leaders of Israel meet the land before entering it. After the 40-day mission, the 12 men have returned and are ready to make their report. This is where we catch up to verse 26. Vayelechu vayavo el Moshe ve'el Aharon ve'el kol adat b'nei Yisrael el midbar paran kadesha. Vayashivu otam davar ve'et kol ha'ida vayarum et peri ha'aretz. Vayisapiru lo vayomeru. Banu el ha'aretz asher shelachtanu, v'gam zavat chalav udvash hi, v'zeh pir yah. They proceeded to come to Moshe and Aharon and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Without being cynical or reading with a critical eye, the initial report about the land is excellent. Its fruits, it's flowing with milk and honey. For the record, I've heard from Rav Yaakov Meidan that the milk is goat's milk. Goats graze in Israel at large for anyone to see. And honey refers to dates, as it does in the verse about the seven fruits of Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Zechemen Udvash. To the extent that when Moshe and Sefer Dvarim retells their report, he retells and reformulates only this part of the report. The land is good that God is giving us. How Moshe could only repeat this part of, this, of the report, we'll have to deal with separately later on. Let us now turn to the continuation of their report. Verse 28. Ephes. כי אז העם היושב בארץ, והערים בצורות גדולות מאוד, וגם ילידי הענק ראינו שם. עמלק יושב בארץ הנגב, והחיתי והיבוסי והאמורי יושב בהר, והכנעני יושב על הים ועל יד הירדן. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak or the descendants of the giant there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. The main question we have to ask about these two verses is, is there any commentary in this report, or is it an objective one? Did they volunteer more information that they were, than they were asked about? Did Moshe not ask if the nations were strong or not? He did. Did he not ask whether the cities were fortified or not? He did. Perhaps one could question the comment about the sons of Anak, the sons of the giant, but one could easily see that as part of the report of the strength of the nations which Moshe did ask about. Verse 27, again, seems to be an objective report, but one could say was not asked about. Were they asked for a detailed report of where the nations in Canaan dwell? Perhaps not. But it, is it obvious that this is becoming a commentary? This question becomes crucial in order to understand the next verse, verse 30. 
ויהס כלב את העם אל משה, ויאמר, עלו נעלה וירשנו אותה, כי יכול נוכל לה. Then Kalev quieted the people before Moshe and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Kalev feels at this point he must intervene. Was it to counter what his fellow spies had said, or was it to preempt a conclusion he felt they were going to say? Rashi explains that the expression El Moshe in this verse implies that Kalev gave the feeling that he was about to attack Moshe in order to take the stage, and then said what he said. Let's go back to the verses of the spy's initial report to evaluate our question about their report and about Kalev's response, a counterattack or a preemptive one. Rashi views the entire report as manipulative. Even mentioning of Zavat Chalav Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey, was only to sound credible. If they were only negative, they would not be believed. Amalek is mentioned in the south to scare the nation who had already been burned by them. And the location of the Canaanite along the Jordan River closes that option as an entry point. Amalek closes them off in the south. The Canaanite closes them off on the Jordan River and perhaps also along the sea. So according to Rashi, the spies gave a negative report and Kalev responded to them. The Abarbanel goes in Rashi's footsteps and beyond, pinpointing why each phrase was to undermine the Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. The Ramban takes a different approach. The Ramban claims that the entire report up to Kalev's words were truthful, as should be expected, except for the word Ephes. Aval Rish'am Bemilat Ephes. Their wickedness was in that one word. A resounding but, or however, which in the Ramban's understanding of the word implies hopelessness. Despite everything we said about how good the country is, the mission to conquer it is hopeless. Therefore, according to the Ramban, the report was 99% objective with one word of commentary, which changed the entire report to a negative prognosis, to which Kalev counterattacked. If we adopt the Ramban's approach with one but, we deny the loaded nature of the word FS, then we'll have a counter-approach to Rashi's. The word Ephes means but, but with no negative connotation. It is a wonderful land, but it will be challenging to conquer it. Kalev understood where this report was heading towards, and he wanted to have the upper hand. He did not want his peers to say their conclusion first. So when they said their objective report, Kalev, knowing and understanding what they were slowly bringing to Bring, that they were slowly bringing the nation a negative conclusion, preemptively concluded that despite the strength of the nations, we are capable of conquering the land. This, of course, unleashed the harsh and true response of the spies. This response is no longer objective. This response is true commentary. And we move on to verse 31. <laughs> לא נוכל לעלות אל העם, כי חזק הוא ממנו. ויוציאו דיבת הארץ אשר תראו אותה אל בני ישראל לאמור. הארץ אשר עברנו בה לתור אותה, ארץ אוכלת יושביה היא, וכל העם אשר ראינו בתוכה אנשי מידות. ושם ראינו את הנפילים, בני ענק מן הנפילים, ונהי ועינינו כחגבים, וכן היינו בעיניהם. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. 
So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had sought out, saying, The land through which we have gone seeking seeking it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Verse 31 should be divided from verses 32 and 33. Verse 31 is a direct response to Kalev. Verses 32 and 33 are something else. Verse 31 As opposed to Kalev who says, we can, they say, we cannot. But now they start something called Hotsa'at Diba, which is already making up lies, or perhaps presenting something with a grain of truth in a specific, exaggerated way in order to make the listener reach a specific conclusion. The Ramban differentiates between Hava'at Diba, bringing Diba, which is telling the truth, but unnecessarily just to be a gossip or a snitch, something that Yosef did to his brothers, whereas Hotza'at Diba is creating a lie or a false impression. Let's go through each of the phrases in order to understand the lie. Eretz ochelet Yoshveha. Why is this a lie? The, the fact that the land devours its dwellers, because till this point they are talking about the strength of the people in the country. That means a country that cultivates strength. A country that kills its dwellers seems to be the opposite of the truth and of what they themselves testified to. They were all of great proportions? Or there were the sons of the giants in Hebron? How did we suddenly conclude that everyone has great proportions? Nephilim. Nephilim are a reference to a pre-flood type of superhuman, super-warrior type mentioned at the end of Parashat Bereshit. Referencing them is like referencing a mythological figure who is not of this world, a fantasy creature. Vanehi ve'inenu kachagavim, we were like grasshoppers, in, we felt like grasshoppers and we were like grasshoppers to them. It is one thing to describe a personal subjective feeling how one felt next to somebody, as grasshoppers. But the spies go one step further and decide that those giants viewed them as grasshoppers. Presumably, not a conversation they had with the people of Canaan, but a conclusion they made for themselves. If the first report discussed strong people living in the land, fortified cities, some giants, and the layout of the various enemy nations, which was close to or 100% true, this second report is fake news. It depicts giants, tall, brave men, and mythological warriors as the norm, not unusual. It puts the difference between us as them as the difference between us and grasshoppers. When we open the book of Yoshua about the reality in Eretz Israel, we see very few battles with giants just around the city of Hebron, until later on in Tanakh, well, we, we meet the battles with the Philistines, which gives new meaning to verse 22, which we read in the previous section. We asked if the 12 men traveled the entire length of the country, why does verse 22 focus just on Hebron? We answered what we answered, but perhaps we can now suggest that the Torah was preempting the spies' lies. The giants were very limited in numbers, 
and in geographical location, not like the spies will subsequently report. Additionally, let us read what Rahab says to Joshua's spies in chapter 2 of Yehoshua, almost 40 years later, before the splitting of the Jordan River, when the splitting of the Red Sea might have been a distant memory. Vatomer el ha'anashim, yadati kinatan adonai lachem et ha'aretz, v'chinaflai matchem aleinu, v'chinamogu kol yoshvei ha'aretz mipenechem, kishamanu et asher hovish adonai et meyam suf mipenechem, betzetchem mimitraim, v'asher asitem lishnei malchei ha'emori asher be'ever ha'yarden l'sichon ul'og asher hecheram temotam, v'anishma'a, she said to the men, I know that the Hashem has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Hashem dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Hashem your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahav is the average Joe, describing the impact and the resonance of the splitting of the sea on the nations of Canaan albeit after the conquest of Sichon and Og in the more immediate past. But how did the world feel 40 years earlier, just after the splitting of the sea, the ten plagues, the decimation of the Egyptian empire to their slaves? Did the spies ask Rachav and people like her to find out? Apparently not. They made their own conclusions. We are like grasshoppers. If we want to know how the nations of Canaan felt, we can look at the end of the Song of the Sea. Shamu Amir Yir Gazun Chil Achaz Yoshvei Kenan. Just as Rahav described, fear grasped the dwellers of Kenan. But now we leave the spies and go to the nation, because this is the crucial playing field. Not what the spies say, but how does the nation react? We turn to chapter 14, verse 1. Vatisa kol haida vaitenu et kolam, vaivku haam balaila hahu, vailonu al mosheve ala haron kol bene Israel, vayomeru alehem kol haida, lumatnu beeretz mitraim, o bamidbar haze, lumatnu, velamadonai me viotanu el haaretz hazot lin pol baherev, nashenu vetapenu yehu lavaz, halo tovlanu shuv mitraima, vayomeru ishalachiv, nitena rosh, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moshe and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is Hashem bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Someone definitely deserves to cry reading these verses. I'm not sure it's been Israel. Despite the ten plagues, the exodus from Egypt, the splitting of the sea, the man, the water in the wilderness, God's revelation at Har Sinai and in the Mishkan, all of this makes no impact. 
B'nai Yisrael buy into the spies' narrative lock, stock, and barrel. First, Vailonu al Moshe ve'al Aharon kol B'nai Yisrael. What? Still? Isn't this stale already? Didn't B'nai Yisrael misdirect their complaints towards Moshe and Aharon enough times? In Sefer Shmot, in Sefer Bemidbar, didn't Moshe teach them that they are supposed to turn to God, not to them? This might explain how the Torah will soon describe Moshe and Aharon's passive, hopeless response in the upcoming verses, echoing Moshe's sentiments from last week's parasha, as opposed to the response of Kalev and Yoshua, which we will also shortly see. Second, a death wish. Even when death was imminent at the splitting of the sea, they did not stoop so low. They questioned why they left Egypt, but not wishing to die. Here, death is not even imminent. It is only eventuality, if they buy into the spies' narrative. Thirdly, there have been many wishes to go back to Egypt, yearnings for Egypt as evidenced in last week's parasha. But this is already a concrete plan. This is mutiny. Let us appoint a new leader to return to Egypt. The mutiny will continue soon. The next verses will now describe the response of the leadership to the nation's response. Verse 5. Then Moshe and Aharon fell on their faces in the presence of all of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. This is their response. There is no communication with the people. While some of the commentaries attempt to insert some of the verses from the narrative in Dvarim, said by Moshe, into our story, ultimately our narrative does not include them. It describes Moshe and Aharon's response as a cry out to God for help, a public cry out to God for help, a decision that they cannot talk to the people. They have tried and tried over and over again, and despite everything, they remain in the exact same place educationally, or perhaps worse. They leave the stage of education open to other potential leaders. Some pick up the flack and some do not. Verse 6. Yoshua the son of Nun and Kalev the son of Yifune, of those who had sought out the land, tore their clothes. Yoshua, where did he come from? Till now we only heard from Kalev. Perhaps Kalev was more charismatic. Perhaps he was the leader of the two. But here the Torah specifically places Yoshua before Kalev, implying Yoshua is more dominant. Perhaps Yoshua, understanding that he was viewed as Moshe's apprentice, perhaps a yes-man to Moshe, could not initially fight the battle at the stage of the debate, where there was still a real fight. He had to leave the stage for Kalev to make the claims. Any intervention at that stage would be counterproductive and backfire. But now that the fire is burning bright, he comes in alongside or perhaps in front of Kalev to combat the flames. But how? They rend their clothing? Isn't that more of a passive internal response similar to that of Moshe and Aaron? How does that help? But their response is not over. Verse 7. Verse 
ארץ אשר היא זבת חלב ודבש. אך בדוני אל תמרודו, ואתם אל תראו את עם הארץ, כי לחמנו הם. שר צילם מעליהם, בדוני איתנו אל תיראום. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to seek out is an exceedingly good land. If Hashem is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Hashem, and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and Hashem is with us. Do not fear them. First, they combat the lies of the spies. The land does not devour its dwellers. It is a very good land. But then they return to the core of the problem. Just as God put his finger on the problem in last week's parasha when he said, Ki Hashem You have despised God who is among you. Here Yoshua and Kalev put their fingers on the core of the matter. God. There is mutiny here. There is a rebellion. On the surface against Moshe and Aharon's leadership, let us appoint a new leader and return to, me, to Egypt. But under the surface, Yoshua and Kalev call a spade a spade. This is a rebellion against God. Not believing that we can conquer the Canaanite nation after all we have been through is rebelling against God. Don't rebel against God. God is with us. We can conquer them. ויאמרו כל העדה לרגום אותם באבנים, וכבוד אדוני נראה באוהל מועד אל כל בני ישראל. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of Hashem appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. The nail in the coffin. Yoshua and Kalev are rejected by the nation and are almost stoned. God reveals his glory as a sign of anger. Who did not respond? How quickly do we forget last week's Parsha? Did we not just appoint 70 elders, prophets, alongside Moshe to help him so that he's not alone? What happened to them? Three theoretical possibilities exist. One, they tried to help Moshe, but were so ineffective that their efforts are not noteworthy. Two, they were silent. They did not take sides. Three, they took sides, the side of the spies. Rashi makes a brief, almost too brief comment to notice on verse 1 in chapter 14. On the words, Vatisa kol ha'ida va'itnu et kolam, Rashi comments, based on the Midrash Tanchuma, with one word, san hedraot. Who was crying? Who was leading the nation in complaining? The Sanhedrin but not singular Sanhedrin, Sanhedraot, in plural. How many Sanhedrin were there? Was it the elders of Sefer Shemot who are mentioned time after time, but are so not effective that Moshe is alone when he judges the people and is scolded by his father-in-law Yitro for being alone in judging the people? Was it the judges appointed by Moshe in Parashat Yitro that are so not effective that Moshe is alone again in last week's Parsha? Or was it the new, fresh, 70 elders prophets from last week's Parasha who were appointed to help and assist Moshe? Or was it all three of them, as Rashi says, Sanhedraot, in plural? Whichever of the three theoretical options we choose, 
ineffectively with Moshe, or not taking sides, or openly taking sides against Moshe, the silence of the elders should be deafening to our ears. In this session, we have heard what the spies have to say, what Kalev had to say on his own, the lies of the spies, the harsh, unprecedented response of the nation, the seemingly hopeless response of Moshe and Aharon, the brave and apparently dangerous response of Yoshua and Kalev, and the complete lack of response, the silence of the 70 elders, the elders, the judges, the secondary leadership who time and time appear in the Torah, but at the crucial moments disappear. Now, as we approach the next section, with great trepidation, we await God's response in the next section of the parashah.